Hi, I'm Gus Warland, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shaw & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Tim Costello. We've already heard from Tim's brother, Peter Costello, on the podcast, and they're a family we wouldn't mind having a cup of tea with and watching the footy with. Tim Costello is one of Australia's leading voices on social justice and global poverty and has been instrumental in ensuring these issues are placed on the national and international agenda. He grew up in Melbourne and practiced criminal and family law where he saw some of the darker sides of the justice system. He travelled the world for work in poverty alleviation and emergency relief as he led World Vision in Australia for 13 years. Tim was the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Advocate of World Vision Australia. Tim worked as a lawyer and served as Mayor of St Kilda. He was named in the Australian of the Year Awards in 2006 and was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2005. Being a leader didn't necessarily come naturally to Tim, but his take on what it is to be a leader is refreshing. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of the choice of our guest. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our chat with Tim Costello. Tim Costello, welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling this morning? Today, I'm feeling good, Gus. Thank you for asking. Let's start the ball rolling with me asking you, what were you like as a kid? I was a dreamer, a terrible daydreamer. I uh, was dreaming of being an Essendon footballer and I never made it. I was dreaming of getting the best uh, football swap cards and everyone seemed to uh, be more cunning than me, particularly my brother, and uh, <laughs> scoring them. In fact, I think while I was daydreaming, he was saving his money and organising and I was uh, sort of had my head in the clouds. That sounds like you had a good old time. I was going to ask you who your favourite football team is, but I can say that was the Bombers. It was the Bombers. Every one of the uh, Costellos barrack for the Bombers. Uh, all our children barrack for the Bombers. Uh, heresy has no rights. If you don't <laughs> barrack for the Bombers, you're not in this family. <laughs> what did your family look like? Can you give us the rundown of who was who? Sure. So uh, mum and dad were both teachers. Dad was 11 years older than mum, a return soldier, fought up in Papua New Guinea in the Second World War. Mum nearly died in when she was 19. She was in hospital for two years. They said, you may not make it. And she did. My dad was dating her at that time. Uh, he, they said, well, you mustn't get married. She did. They said, you mustn't have children. And when I was conceived, they advised her to abort. And she said, what would the doctors know? And uh, mum's still alive at 92. <laughs> Dad died a few years ago. So um, middle class, both teachers, uh, three kids, and uh, grew up in uh, Main Street, Blackburn. Your mum sounds like she's an absolute trooper, the type of person you'd sit down and have a cup of tea and learn a whole lot from. The word describing my mum, which just about everyone uses, is uh, she is a formidable woman. <laughs> and she always uh, would start with, uh, I wonder who's the cleverest. I wonder who knows the answer to this question. I would start to feel this anxiety that I was stupid. And often I was. My brother, when they handed out the brains, cleaned up most of the family brains. <laughs> but my mum 
always pushed us, always asked questions. You get a picture of my mum. I do. She sounds like my great-grandmother who was from Sheffield in England and she was very formidable. And she had 12 children and she ruled the roost. So she sounds a bit like like her. Her, her name was Grandma Nutter <laughs> and she just was formidable. But I loved her. I absolutely loved her. No, totally. I, I, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, none of us would be without my mum. Dad was a great balance. Dad was totally non-ambitious. He taught all his life but turned down promotions. He just wanted to be in the classroom. So uh, I think we had the best of both worlds in our parents. Yeah, sounds like you were very, very lucky and that's a beautiful story. I can just imagine a uh, Sunday roast around your place would have been really good fun. You love the Bombers and you had to be a Bomber to be in the family, but did you love other sports as well? Did you go to the MCG? Was sport a big part of your growing up? Yeah, huge part. We love cricket. We love tennis. Uh, I still love sport. I played AFL footy until I was 57 in the veterans competition. Full forward, I never got out of the 10-yard square, but I could take a mark and kick a goal. Uh, So, yes, sport was very important to me, Gus. Where did you start sort of working out where you wanted to go? Was it something you worked out straight away or did you sort of have a few false starts and, and then finally found it? Look, being the dreamer I was, my parents said to me, now, in year 12, we really want you to go to university. You're going to have to work hard. And uh, it was my mum that gave me that little lecture. And uh, I sort of snapped a bit out of daydreaming. I did well in year 12, did well enough to get into law. I didn't really want to be a lawyer, but given law was a five-year degree and I didn't want to work, I chose the longest course and uh, went off to university <laughs> and had a wonderful time. And I think the, I think the moment that snapped me out, interestingly, uh, was the 1970s. A South African student, Steve Biko, a black student, was killed in a police uh, station in uh, Johannesburg. And suddenly I thought, wow, someone my age, judged just because he's black, without the rights that I have and take for granted, lost his life. Wow, this is serious. It, it happened at the same time a, a South African evangelist, a white evangelist actually came to our university and uh, he said, you know, the people who uh, created apartheid and maintain it are Bible reading, prayerful Christians in power. And it slapped me out of my sort of daydream. I just thought, well, if you had enough Christians in the world, justice uh, would be solved. And uh, I realized actually Christians can be unjust. And I started to think deeply about both my faith, about justice. Uh, that, I think, was where I, I really started to wake up, Gus. So from that moment on, you went, well, I want to do something about it, because a lot of people in this world sort of find this stuff out and end up going, you know what, I'm going to keep to my path and I'll let someone else deal with it. Was there always a sense within yourself or within your family that you did have to step up and be the leaders? There certainly was. Uh, I would often... Uh, reflect that my mother, who was sort of, I guess you'd say, middle class, dad working class, uh, foisted her ambitions onto her sons. My sister would say not so much her, but onto her sons. And that mantra was, you have to be the best at what you do. You have to serve. You have to give back. You, If you've got leadership, you have to exercise it. And I'm very grateful for that. So uh, I had this sense, ah, it can't just be about me making a success of my life. I absolutely exist 
to serve others, to do better. I might say, Gus, I'm still sort of torn when I wake up in the morning between the twin desires to change the world or just to enjoy the world. And it makes it very hard to plan the day when you're torn by those desires. Absolutely. And leadership is a lonely place as well. You know, there's a lot of thinking in your own mind and trying to work things out and taking educated guesses and so forth. Did it come naturally to you to to play that role that obviously you wanted to play because you loved your mum and, and you trusted her thoughts on you? But it's not easy sometimes. No, and it was a, a slow journey for me. I, I practiced as a lawyer for a couple of years doing criminal law and family law and Every uh, crim I represented had repented on the steps of the law court and I'd keep them out of jail and then they would go back to crime. And family law, you know, it's very depressing. People who once loved each other, scratching each other's eyes out in court, me representing one side or the other over custody, over the, the car or the house. And so I thought, gee, law isn't really delivering justice. Uh, and I took myself out and went and studied theology in Switzerland for four years, really to be a better lawyer, to actually say, what is justice? And how do I really leverage change? Because uh, law just seems at the end of the day to be making money, and that's fine, but it's not fulfilling that deeper need. So it was a slow uh, evolving for me, Gus. So you're obviously a learner. You, you love the fact to learn. So when you went to Switzerland, you did that. Were you a better student of being a bit more mature and a bit more knowledgeable than you were the first time around when you said yourself it was, um, you know, you wanted to not work. So you went for, for a five-year course. Yeah, that's right. I, I had actually got, I'd grown up a bit. Uh, the daydreaming had stopped a bit and I loved the theology. You know, doing a law degree for me was just filling the ticking the requisites to actually have a wonderful five years at university, sport and recreation and friends, it was fantastic. Uh, theology uh, in Zurich was tough. I had to learn German. I had to learn Hebrew, Greek and Latin. <laughs> I did uh, four years of serious thinking about meaning. Why am I here? What's it all about? What's the deeper call on my life and the purpose for the world. Uh, theology was taking me into those those areas, but with great academic rigor. So suddenly I was, I was really working and studying hard. It was a very, very different chapter from the daydreamer. I love the fact that you can sort of look back at your life and sort of see those moments, and I'm seeing them now, all those moments that really made you the man that you've become. When you left Switzerland, what was the next step for you? What were your thought processes to make sure that you kept moving in that positive forward direction? So I wanted to be a lawyer uh, still, but doing more justice-oriented law. And there was a little church, Baptist church in St Kilda that had basically died. It had under 10 members. And I said, I'll come and preach for you on Sundays if you let me open up a legal practice in, in the church. And they said, yes. And now St Kilda back in 1984 was the red light area. It was the catchment area for runaway kids, for mentally ill, for uh, drugs and crime. So I opened up a, a legal practice in the church, preaching on Sundays, but doing justice-oriented poverty law, not making much money, but actually feeling very satisfied that I was integrating both my faith 
and my passion for justice through helping those who couldn't afford a lawyer. So that next 10 years as a lawyer minister were very, very rich years. That's that's what I did after Switzerland. So you're really filling up the cup, that spiritual cup, and making yourself feel so good. That must be an amazing feeling to actually find something that gives you so much richness and so much happiness. Yeah, I think uh, true happiness comes from that sense I'm doing what I was made to do. I'm doing what I'm called to be. I felt that. And, you know, it then just led into other opportunities, not planned, but, uh, you know, I was approached to stand for council at St Kilda. I ended up as the mayor of St Kilda. I like to say I was such a good mayor of St Kilda, they abolished the whole council. <laughs> uh, not all my fault. <laughs> Jeff Kennett was uh, doing council amalgamations, but I stood on a platform uh, of social housing in St Kilda. And I'm proud to say that uh, whereas Victoria has less than 4% of all housing stock that's social, St Kilda has 15%. So many of the homeless and the poor in St Kilda uh, have a home because we had policies, the platform I stood on and led. So my sense of justice uh, in St Kilda continued to to expand. Unplanned, uh, but there was this sense of my cup overflowing, I'm doing what I'm meant to do. Leadership is something that some people really look at and go, you know what, that's what I want. It sounds to me that you sort of stumbled across it and went, okay, well, I actually can make a difference if I do stand up here and lead. Did it come naturally to you once you got there? And what about the speaking part of it? Were you always comfortable, you know, in your own skin to be able to stand up there and and talk? Yeah, the one thing the Costellos were brilliant at was speaking. (laughs) So family (laughs) lunches would go, particularly Sunday, would go for two hours. Uh, I remember at the age of 10, one of my friends who'd come to Sunday lunch going, your family's weird. (laughs) And I said, what? He said, we eat our roast dinner and turn on world championship wrestling or go out and kick the footy. You debate and discuss for two hours. Now, I thought all families were like mine. <laughs> I didn't know mine was weird. <laughs> so uh, the the speaking part was very, very natural. Both my parents were teachers, so it was, that was never the difficulty. No, I think the leadership part is, is still a mystery to me, to be honest, Gus. I uh, have young people say, oh, I'd love to be... World Vision CEO one day, tell me how you got there. And I genuinely am puzzled. I go, well, I was a lawyer. I went off and did some theology. I was a part-time preacher and a lawyer. I ended up a mayor accidentally. (laughs) Uh, World Vision came and headhunted me. I don't know quite how you plan to get there. I never planned any of that sort of leadership style. The other side of it's interesting. When young people say, I want to be a leader, my first response, to be really honest, is why? And it's because I know the cost. Anything I say in public, I know up to 50% of people will disagree with me. Some 5% will never forgive me. (laughs) And whether it's trolling or attacks or questioning, why do you want to be a leader? Uh, it it does take a lot of courage. No one ever said that that to me when you know I was stumbling into being a leader. It's actually pretty costly. So uh, that leadership thing does remain remain a bit of a puzzle as I think about it, Gus. Leadership, as I said a little bit earlier, can be very lonely. 
how did you make sure that you weren't alone when you absolutely needed that support around you, whether it was your own family or um, a, a good mate or someone that you could just talk to, warts and all, without any fear of judgment? How important were those sort of people and who were they in your life? Yeah, no, that was fundamentally important. Uh, beginning in my years at St Kilda and certainly when I was mayor, I had a group of three guys. We met every Friday morning for breakfast religiously. These three guys, even as my public star was ascending and I was thinking I am somebody, would uh, ground me quicker than anybody else on the planet. They would tell me I was having a lend of myself. They would puncture the balloon <laughs> and that accountability group that continued for years and has continued in other forms all of my life was absolutely fundamental uh, that sense that uh, when you think you're starting to become something remember it's all gift and it's not you and there are going to be people who thankfully will tell you the raw honest truth and in relationship that's exactly what you need and, of course, when they do give you a rap every now and again, you know that it's absolutely well earned and you should take that to the bank as well because that's what I love about my mates is that, you know, I mean, we've got a common friend in Hugh Jackman, as as you know, and he, of course, is fantastic and brilliant and lovely and charming and all that. But there's nothing quite like walking out of a movie with him, one of his premieres, and saying, oh, mate, oh, oh, oh not sure about that one. And he just looks and goes, all right. You know, because everyone else is telling him how wonderful everything is. It's You just need that balance, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I remember uh, taking Hugh and Deb on the second trip. First Cambodia, then we were in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa. And uh, I was waiting in the lobby of the hotel before we were going out to the field. There was a number of uh, tourists, uh, Italian, French, uh, Spanish, uh, and uh, I looked up momentarily, Gus, and all these women tourists were running straight toward me. <laughs> and I put my arms out, and they all ran straight past me, Gus. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, I've got an athlete's body. You, you can see that. <laughs> well, you imagine what it was like when we were 15 and 16 at the Blue Light Discos trying to get a dance. I felt the same way. <laughs> I, I share the pain. <laughs> Let's talk about World Vision because obviously it's a huge part of your life and that's where you met Hugh. What did it mean to you when they did come a-knocking and was it a tough decision to decide to do it? Yes, initially my response was no. I'm loving what I'm doing and overseas poverty I'm really concerned about. I've been on an aid agency's board so it was deep in my uh, justice horizons but I was... Um, in the city of Melbourne by then, I had a sort of pulpit for the media cameras on the steps of my church talking about casinos and all sorts of other issues, and I said no to them. My wife was the one who said, I'm getting a bit bored with how repetitive you are. <laughs> you are saying the same things over and over again. You need a change. Take this seriously. And I went off and uh, talked seriously to World Vision. And uh, look, that the next uh, uh, 15 years of my life were at World Vision were the best years of my life. So uh, I'm very grateful to my wife. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw & Partners Financial Services. Shuram Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. 
With seven offices across Australia, Shoran Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shorenpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shoran Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. Let's talk about your wife for a moment because just to pull back the curtain a little bit, you and I were trying to organise this technology to talk and you had to ring your missus to, to, to get on and click on and get your camera to work. <laughs> the thing is that you, I could hear that conversation. You could hear how much love there is. How long have you been married? Your family situation? Yeah, so uh, my, I met my wife when she was 16. I was 17. We went out for seven years before we married. She broke it off seven times. I would get, I called poisoned letters, almost one a year saying things like, you know, I don't want to marry a man less intelligent than me. I'm worried that you're such a a dreamer. (laughs) My brother at my wedding, he was my best man, pulled out one of those letters. Uh, That was a bit embarrassing. But thankfully, she married me and uh, we've been married 42 years at every level. I am who I am because of her. We have three wonderful children in the in their 30s, uh, two grandchildren, now another two on the way. And I am just so blessed to have someone who's a soulmate, who's a friend, who is the confidant of all of my life. A marriage, I think, is really a commitment, but also knowing that there's someone who is a witness a deep witness to the innermost things of your life and a confidential confidant who absolutely goes on believing in you when you have great doubts about yourself. And uh, yeah, that's that's what it's, it's meant for me. And fixes up the, the cam when you're in trouble on the computer. <laughs> what do you think in the end got her over the line after seven poisonous letters eventually she did she just did you wear her down did you did you just did she just give in and go righto I'll go for it look I think I started to mature she had lost her mother uh, at a young age while she was 14 uh, she was the only daughter five older brothers she cared for her father she was very practical she had to do the cooking and the family the other brothers had moved out uh, by and large And I think the fact that I was still at home, couldn't cook or clean, was a daydreamer, didn't seem to really be serious. I think what wore her down was she saw that I was maturing and that the raw material, let's say, might be shaped in me, that I might make good eventually. Well, I'm sure that she feels that way now. She's made the right choice. And uh, your three kids, obviously, you're very proud of. I've got three kids myself. And I just think, you know, I'm in charge of little people here. And then all of a sudden, they're big people. They're making their own choices, university and traveling and so forth. That really is the key. Have you found yourself turning into your mum and dad like, like most of us do uh, in terms of being a parent yourself? Yeah, I found myself uh, saying exactly the same things to my kids that uh, my father said to me, my mother said to me. I realised the uh, tape was playing. It was deeply wired. It was a bit of a shock to (laughs) realise. My parents were wonderfully supportive grandparents. You know, the, the extraordinary blessing of having families like that and we know how different different it is for so many families which is uh, why I've really tried to teach my kids accept everyone never judge you don't know what people have been through growing up in St Kilda you know my kids best friends were Cambodian refugees 
whose father was killed in a car accident and I had to identify the body driving to Bendigo at the ages of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine. My kids were at a funeral with an open casket of the body of Kum, the Cambodian man. And I, I do remember thinking, well, my, my kid's upbringing is so profoundly different to mine in safe Blackburn, in Main Street Blackburn. And uh, I'm just so thankful my kids now look back on those uh, St Kilda years and say they taught us not to judge, to accept, to uh, to realise that everyone are, everyone's a, a fragile human just trying to get by. Mm. I think we find it hard sometimes in Australia to sort of show leadership and, and being powerful, but also shining light on kindness and vulnerability and leading with that as much as the other side, the old school way of looking at it. I get a, a glimpse from you that that balance of being powerful and strong and sticking up for what you believe in, but leading with vulnerability and with your heart has got you where you are and that's what you're trying to instill in in everyone that comes across you. Would that be right? Yeah, no, I think, I hope that's right. I mean, I, I often try to be strong with the strong, those who are powerful and run the place, absolutely tender with those who aren't so powerful. But vulnerability, I think, is the key word. You know, I still find myself... Uh, giving talks unrelated to my time in World Vision. And out of nowhere, I'll have a picture of a Sudanese woman in a camp who uh, was in desperate poverty. And without warning, in the middle of a speech at a happy occasion, I will be in tears. And people will go, that's odd. Why is he crying? And I realize that I carry that vulnerability, uh, that you build walls around your emotions, but they're not watertight. And that tears aren't something to be ashamed of. And I'll explain if it's appropriate that, sorry, I'm just having a moment. And the fascinating thing is that vulnerability speaks of vulnerability. The tears often are much more powerful than the words. People go, wow, I'm struggling. He hasn't got it all together. It's okay to express that. So though it's embarrassing at times, uh, carrying, you know, that vulnerability still, I guess it's probably a form of post-traumatic stress that I still carry from my time there, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. And in many ways it heals. With the work that I've been doing with Gotcha for Life, I spend a lot of time with people who are in tears and emotional. And the first thing they do, Tim, is that they apologize to me for crying and I always say, why do we do that in this country? I found myself doing it at times too, because is it, do you think, because we're making them uncomfortable and we're apologising for that? Oh, look, I think we've been taught that being vulnerable uh, leaves you open to attack, manipulation, coercion, that you therefore must protect yourself. And uh, there may be occasions that's where that's true. There are, sadly, malevolent people who can take advantage and see weakness and exploit it. Uh, sadly, in our world, that is also true, Gus. But I think the um, downside of that message is very costly to uh, the sense of vulnerability, inviting both vulnerability and therefore expression of emotion, solidarity, healing, and a sense I'm not alone. And thank you. Thank you for those tears. And I'm on this journey with you. So passionate around causes that 
are close to you. With the World Vision, after that, you became really focused in on the gambling side of, of stuff in Australia, and that's one that doesn't seem to be going away in a hurry. What made you feel so passionate about that? Was that something from your past, or does something just – did you see that when you were at St Kilda? Yeah, my grandfather was an SP bookie. My father could always pick a, a, a horse at the races, so we came from a family that uh, had no problem, really, with that. Uh, so it wasn't uh, the family upbringing. It was at St Kilda in my legal practice represented a woman, Zlata Petrovic, who had uh, stolen $60,000 after pokies had been introduced to uh, Victoria in 1992. She'd owned a home, had a great marriage. She'd been successful as a businesswoman, lost that job, uh, took another job. And Pokey's addiction meant she'd stolen $60,000. I represented her as a lawyer. She got four years jail. And I remember visiting her in jail and say, how does a woman who doesn't have any other vices, who has been law-abiding, never broken any law to the age of 55, end up in prison for four years? And I realised here was a product that was predatory. It releases the dopamine in the brain when you sit in front of the machine that hits the pleasure centre of the brain with the power of cocaine. And uh, people literally have become criminals. So I started researching and found out that Australia has 20% of the world's pokies. Uh, I discovered that we have 75% of the world's pokies outside of casinos, so in pubs and clubs, 75% of the world's pokies that are so accessible. That's why we have the greatest gambling losses anywhere in the world. 40% higher than the nation that comes second. So if America's blind spot is guns, ours really is gambling. So I, 25 years ago, started raising my voice. I've never been a prohibitionist. People should absolutely have the freedom to gamble. But uh, seeing the growth of sports betting, that where every kid knows the logo, the jingle, the, the odds, and now talks of NRL or AFL or cricket in terms of odds and uh, sports betting logos, we have just given over to this tsunami. So that's what got me motivated, not, not uh, Zlata Petrovic and her story and representing her, not uh, anything in the family, Gus. Yeah. Now I can see that once it becomes something that you're passionate about, then nothing will stop you. And I suppose that's the the great thing about you and your leadership over your life is that you've always stuck to your guns and you've been doing it with a lot of passion. And does that passion ever run out? Does that passion sometimes make you a little less focused on other things? Like how have you been able to to manage and manoeuvre your way through being so passionate but also being a family man and that type of thing? Yeah, I think the uh, fact that there's still a bit of the daydreamer in me has really helped and will often put my tennis or my stand-up paddling <laughs> or uh, recreations, sometimes even before work, uh, people look at me and say, oh, he must be driven. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I will always find a way to uh, enjoy life. My wife uh, says to me, the trouble with you, when a wife starts with that phrase, you know, you cringe, the, the trouble with you <laughs> is you won't burn out, but you'll burn everybody around you out. <laughs> I haven't uh, suffered burnout. I haven't lost that passion. But I think it's because that sense of play is actually very strong in my life. I'm not, I'm not the alpha male that just has to work and work. I'm sure you don't do it for the accolades, but, you know, when I was researching you, you've, you've been given lots of stuff for really good work. Does that drive you that type of stuff and if there is one thing that you go you know what 
that was a day. You know, when I got that award, that was a day where I went, you know what, that's that was a good one, and you hold it tight. Well, the most surprising award back in 1997 was listed uh, as one of 100 people on Australia's, uh, by the National Trust, 100 Australians, you know, Don Bradman, who was still alive, was there, and Dawn Fraser. And I, I felt pretty proud about that. And I went up to Sydney. John Howard introduced to us, and we had to go to a table. We discovered later people had paid $1,500 a ticket to sit at a table, 100 tables, with one of Australia's 100 national living treasures. And uh, as I walked to the table, Gus, and people who didn't know who they were going to get saw they had got me, uh, I find it hard to describe the looks on their faces. There they were hoping, if not for Kylie Minogue, at least Ray Martin, and they got Tim Costello. Uh, so uh, I have always kept honours in, in the right place. Uh, very humbling to receive them, but I, ha- I don't think I've ever said, no, I've made it. There's never been that sense uh, from those honours, Gus. I've got no doubt at the end of that lunch, they were all thrilled that they were sitting with you. So I will say that from my point of view, it's been an absolute joy chatting to you today. Can I just quickly go back because we've got a fast five to finish, you know, your favourite book, your favourite, you know, movie, that type of stuff. But one thing like character traits seem to be an important part of your family, your mum, who I would love to meet one day. You're obviously looking at characters and trying to work them out and so forth. Is there a character trait or a set of values that you took from your family that you've now instilled in your children that you'll now instill in your grandchildren? Yeah, I think the uh, character trait I got from my parents was curiosity. Both as teachers, they kept asking why. And, you know, we go on family holidays and stop in country towns and my dad would ask why there are more names from the Second World War. Uh, sorry, from the First World War on the, uh, on the Anzac Shrine than the Second World War. And what were the causes of the war? And why is this built here in a country town? So from an early age, curiosity was uh, the great trait. And I think uh, my children have picked that up. That's fantastic. Let's do the let's do the fast five. Your favourite holiday destination, Tim? Well, it's still Victor Harbour. Our family would go there as kids, and I fell in love with that place. Learned to play tennis and surf and swim a bit, and was the happiest time in my family with my siblings' life. So Victor Harbour. You've spoken about tennis a, a little bit, actually. Is are you a bit of a deft hand at tennis? Are you you got a, you got, a, got a few skills there? Oh, look, modesty prevents me answering that, Gus. <laughs> I should say when I, I had a game with Hugh and Hugh said, can I uh, text this because Hugh, Hugh had beaten me. Uh, I said, how many followers, Hugh, have you got? And he said, 14 million. I said, no way are you going to take, you know, Instagram that picture. I'm not going to be that humiliated. <laughs> well, he's got 40 million now. He's growing all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Your favourite quote, if you have one. Yeah, I, I love Martin Luther King. I named my son uh, Martin, and that quote is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, love that quote. Yeah, what a man. What a man. Uh, your favourite movie? It's Local Hero, uh, set in a Scottish village, and a Texan oil tycoon turns out to be the environmentalist. Uh, the Mark Knopfler music is just sublime, and uh, that, that movie I love. We'll make sure we get that out. What about your favourite book? Are, are you a reader? 
Yeah, I, I read a lot of books and I must admit that uh, I'd never got to reading War and Peace. COVID lockdown <laughs> saw me read War and Peace and I was just taken away by Tolstoy's breathtaking question of why war and literally millions of people marching and couldn't they have made different decisions and uh, I found that book extraordinary. I know uh, I know it's a bit intellectually up to admit that I've now read it but it took me to this age <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and your favourite charity because we're giving you $10,000 today to give to your favourite charity. So who would that be and what will they do with the money? So Micro Australia is running the campaign to end COVID for all. It's to get the poor world vaccinated, less than 2.5% of the population in Africa and Asia have had even one jab. Three and a half thousand health workers there have died of the virus. So that charity is very dear to my heart. Beautiful. Well, I, we literally could have talked forever, Tim. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and look forward to a cup of tea one day and continue this chat. Thanks so much for joining us on Not An Overnight Success. It's been a delight. Thank you. That was Tim Costello, and what I loved most about the chat with Tim was how real he was and the fact that he could have gone anywhere, but he decided to follow the passion of poverty to try to make some real changes. Nothing quite like meeting people that actually see a drama, see a situation that needs fixing, and they go and do it. I admire him greatly. Coming up next on Not An Overnight Success is Neil Perry. Neil Perry is one of Australia's most influential restaurateurs. He has spent decades creating iconic venues and special experiences through places like Rockpool, Spice Temple, and now in his latest creation, Margaret. Neil has also been creating menus for Qantas since 1997 and published many cookbooks and good weekend columns. He is a passionate man who speaks openly about his values and beliefs in business and society. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.